given that there is so much fear in the marketplace, we are starting to see some opportunities. We are starting to see the market move a little bit and people start to accept the new reality of the world and some really, really interesting opportunities. I mean, there's definitely a bar that no matter how scary it is in the world, if we can buy at a specific basis and hold for 10 years and cash flow that entire time really well, I mean, those are deals that we'll do all day. So we are starting to see some opportunities. Your next 10 million is a community dedicated to folks who have achieved wealth and are looking to achieve greatness. Our interviews and discussions focus on growing your family's wealth and cash flow with investors across asset classes, but with a particular focus on housing and real estate. But there's more to growing your wealth than just capital allocation. So we try to bring you a variety of conversations and experts. Please subscribe to get notified as soon as a new episode is released. Cody Littlewood, we are back. It is just you and I today, my friend, and a lot, I mean a lot, is going on. Um, and I'm sure everyone who's listening, who listens to the, this this podcast, has heard about all these bank collapses. We're just going to jump right into it. But how the hell does this affect us? You're one of the smartest guys I know when it comes to this kind of stuff. What the hell is going on? Explain it to us, uh, normal humans. What the hell is happening, man? Um, the world is ending. <laughs> Great. <laughs> no, no. It's nice to know you. <laughs> um, well, obviously, so Credit Suisse was just, uh, it was funny uh, in the news, Credit Suisse sent out a, uh, PR, um, a PR release that said, um, Credit Suisse merging with UBS uh, which is yep. obviously clearly not the case. UBS is like bailing them out, buying them for pennies on the dollar for like $3 billion. And I think their market cap, I don't know, 10 years ago, was like $100 billion. Jesus. Um, and even like 10 days ago, it was, it was, it was, you know, five times that. Um, so they're buying them like 25 cents on the dollar, even off of like recent, uh, um, you know, and it's certainly not a merger. UBS is definitely taking them over. The Swiss bank came in and 100%. basically, um, you know, saved them. And that's just the latest of everything that's been going on recently. Um, but, you know, I think there's something interesting happening in that, um, you know, bank runs naturally had a, you know, they, they had the ability to be prevented when you used to have to go stand in line at a bank. And now everything, everything's on your phone. So you can wire $20 million to another bank account in like five minutes. Um, and so that combined with like a social media wor world where, you know, where people just panic about a certain name and then money floods out. I think somebody said the other day, um, you know, during the, man, crap, I'm, I'm going to forget this, but like they said during the Bear Stearns crisis or whatever it was, um, or the, Le it was either Bear Stearns or Lehman. It was only, it was like a, uh, a few billion in one day and the uh, SVB Silicon Valley Bank it was like 42 billion in one day wow um, so the the pace at which like things move right now um, is monster and so you know I'll try to get through this really briefly because I think this has probably been covered ad nauseum by a bunch of thread boys on Twitter and by every other podcast out in the world but um, you know if somebody doesn't watch much news we essentially have had a bank run on two on two major. Uh, one of them, I think, Silicon Valley Bank was the number sixteenth largest bank in the in the nation. Signature Bank was one of the largest commercial real estate lending 
um, you know, uh, banks in the entire nation. And anyways, um, essentially, right, banks, when they get your deposits, they go out and they make loans on them or they buy stuff like treasuries, right? Um, and none of these banks, or in Credit Suisse also, sorry, failed over the weekend or got, didn't fail, but got bought out by uh, by UBS for pennies on the dollar and basically a, and basically a, a private bailout, um, you know, for, to, to keep it short and simple. Um, so anyways, so, you know, they don't have all your cash sitting there 100% funded, right? They have assets on their books, which meet their liabilities and their liabilities are your deposits. So your assets are their liabilities and your liability or their liabilities are, you know, balanced out by assets they keep on their balance sheet. Um, and for anybody that doesn't understand bonds, right? As yields go up, as basically as interest rates go up, bond yield prices go down, right? So if you're earning 5% on $100,000, right? If that price goes to $50,000 and you're still earning that 5%, that $5,000 a year, well, now your yield is 10%, right? So that's kind of how that relationship works. And so as bonds, as, as yields go up, which they have, right? We're in a rising interest rate environment. The value of those bonds go down. And so that means that the you know the the assets they have on their on their books are getting marked down by the market, even though they still have the same liabilities to you, the depositor. Um, and so, essentially, there's some weird accounting rules that allow them to not mark those down on their books until they sell them at a loss. Well, when everyone does a bank run, they have to realize those losses, and you know, and they probably don't have enough because they they they, they technically are they're marked if they're if you're marking them to market and selling them at market price, they are um, uh, you know they are are they they are being kind of you know you they, they don't have enough to cover right essentially yep. and so that's essentially kind of what happened. There's like all sorts of crazy shit that's going on. The Fed is. Not doing QE, but kind of doing QE. They just announced like a new repo facility, uh, I think today, and I haven't totally read up on it, but I know that a lot of people that are pretty critical of the Fed um, have basically said that they're already kind of reversing trends. Bond yields. So basically the, the yield curve has been massively inverted by over 100 basis points for a little while. And it came in sharply in like a week. Uh, and now it's like only inverted like 40 45 basis points. Um, and it, it usually happens right before the head, the Fed starts cutting rates. So this would be an insane. Oh, and you know, one more thing I should point out. Um, and I was just, uh, I was just tweeting about this today, but, uh, the implied federal funds rate, um, you know, there's a, there's a specific traded instrument, um, you know, called the, uh, called the Fed funds future. And that essentially gives you the implied, uh, policy rate of the federal funds. And so it's pricing one more hike. It, this has massively changed in the past like week. It was pricing uh, one more hike in, uh, or sorry, now it's pricing, it was pricing hikes throughout the year, no cuts until like mid 2024. Um, and now they, you already have cuts, at, uh, 75 basis point cut priced into the market by June of this year. So a quarter in March, a quarter in uh, in in May, uh, three quarters in um, uh, three quarters in June, uh, and then two hundred basis points in July being pri- or another sorry another one hundred twenty five basis points, two hundred basis points total uh, being priced in by uh, by July. And so basically, 
the market is pricing in a massive Fed pivot right now um, because basically they've gone, you know, they've, they've pushed as far as they can. Now banks are being, now bank, the banks are under pressure. We're having bank failures, Credit Suisse, SVB, Signature Bank, um, and, uh, and, and also uh, First Republic. Um, First Republic is an amazing, amazing bank for anybody that's a real estate investor. Yep. Um, I don't have, uh, uh, we don't have any exposure there. Uh, but they are an, they are an incredible bank. And, uh, for anybody that kind of knows them, they have a, they have some really great white glove services. Um, and they are under a lot of pressure, but they have really good management. They've, they've held it together so far. And I think they have a really uh, loyal base, but, um, I don't know, you know, all eyes are kind of on them right now. And I know that there's a specific, you know, you know, some structuring going on with Jamie Dimon and, um, Regional banks in general are under a lot of pressure. So even though the Fed came in and backstopped 100% of, of deposits, um, as these banks failed, I kind of skipped over that, um, regional banks are still under a ton of pressure. Um, and why is that important? Um, well, there's 2,000 banks in America, um, and not all of them are as big as, uh, you know, not all of them are, are, are as big as, you know, the top 20, right? So, um, you know, in the top 20, you probably know all their names, and then you probably don't know any of the names of the next 1980. So, um, lots of banks in America doing a lot of lending. Um, and I've talked for a lot, but I'll just say one more thing. The regional banks account for, uh, regional banks account for, and that, that's banks with less than $250 billion in assets make up 80% of commercial real estate loans. Um, according to Goldman Sachs. And so, and 60% of residential real estate loans and half of commercial and industrial loans, it says. So um, anyways, it's just a, you know, these guys, as they come, if they start to come under more pressure from depositors, liquidity will continue to dry up on the lending side. Um, We are, you know, we are obviously pretty fortunate in that we're both investing in housing, which has kind of certain government uh, lending products and government guarantees, but uh, certainly this will, you know, this will, th- this could have kind of a little bit of an impact on the market, on the liquidity of the debt side. So, um, lots of stuff in play. Uh, it, you know, I don't think the Fed will immediately reverse course, but um, you know, we're definitely in the eighth inning of a hiking cycle, and something has to break for unemployment and inflation to kind of change trends, and so. I don't know. Is this the thing that's breaking? Um, it's possible, uh, but certainly, certainly, if it's not this, we're definitely in the eighth inning. So, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a lot to unpack. I thank you for sharing that. I'm also so shocked to hear that um, about the implied Fed rate dropping. Right, as a real estate investor, I think that's music to our ears. Um, but it is interesting that our banks got to the point about this now, like really, and just like to dumb it down if I'm, if I'm correct. Banks take your money, they go invest in 10-year treasuries, bonds, or whatnot, and they can say that they're liquid, but when someone does a bank run, they essentially are not liquid, so then they have to sell at a discount. It's kind of this death spiral that happens. Do you think that these are just banks that did this, or do you think this this is like the bigger segment of banking that has done this? Like, Is this a common practice is kind of what I'm curious about in banking to keep buying these like long notes and to be able to report that they're liquid when they're really not. Yeah. So man, I'm, I'm, I I wish I could remember exactly what I read here, but there is no incentive. Um, 
they don't. There's something about and and man, I I I wish I I had this off the top of my head, but there's some accounting incentive to not buy interest rate swaps on this kind of hold to maturity uh, bond. So th- this this whole accounting rule and everyone like this is getting a little esoteric, but the accounting rule that allows them to not mark their bonds to losses is for their hold to maturity book, right? And there. And I think I, I can't remember essentially what there is, but there's some strong incentives um, from the Fed based on the accounting rules. And I think it's because if they um, they can only not mark them to market in their hold to maturity book. I mean, don't quote me from, uh, but but there's some incentive. I think it's that they don't have to mark them to market on their hold to maturity book if they are not interest rate swaps, but they have to mark the losses on interest rate swap or if they have interest rate swaps. So there's something about that. And so um, it's common for, well, I would say it's uncommon for anybody to be as bad at managing duration risk and interest rate risk as as Silicon Valley Bank was. <laughs> yeah, they were, um, they were pretty bad about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I like we're just dumb real estate investors and, you know, most of us that buy, you know, most of us that are responsibly investing, um, if we do have a bridge loan, uh, we'll usually make sure that we have an interest rate swap, right? Um, so that we're protecting our downside and that we, we you know, we, we're hedging our bets. Uh, we're, we we're essentially hedging our position, right? Because we're all yeah. taking an interest rate position when we take out a loan. Um, and so we're essentially, you know, we're essentially uh, hedging our bets by having that. And so I think, you know, if we're doing it, um, why weren't these guys? But there, there's, there's, that's why there's some incentives. So I don't know, is everyone as bad as them? No, I think that most of the statistics that have come out and shown that they had a lots of, you know, the, these few banks had a particularly high um, uninsured depositor base. So like 90% of deposits at Silicon Valley Bank were uninsured. So over the $250,000 limit, they had a super high uh, exposure to venture capitalists and to, um, you know, to venture capitalists and, uh, and, and startup people. And I do love, uh, you know, Matt Levine is like one of my favorite finance writers. And he said, you know, uh, to oversimplify slightly, its interconnected network of tech startup and venture capitalist depositors all worked themselves into a panic and rushed to withdraw money all at once and then tweeted indignantly about how they were justified in doing that and how it was all the Fed's fault. It was individually rational for each depositor to take its money out and avoid exposure to SVB, but the collective result was quite bad for SVB and for the banking system and for the VCs and startups themselves. Silicon Valley banks, Silicon Valley customers, it turned out, were individually rational but unable to act cooperatively in a mutually beneficial way in the prisoner's dilemma of a bank run they all chose to defect and so um so they did have high exposure to these uh you know kind of highly connected social media um cash burning companies um and they had particularly bad like risk management so all banks are experiencing some losses um, in this, uh, and, um, but some more than others. And certainly these guys, um, you know, certainly these guys more than others. I think that what'll be interesting is like, there's a philosophical question. Is it the, is it better to be the first bank to fail or is it better to be the 12th? Right. Cause like the first bank to fail, like, you know, if you're the first bank to fail, the FDIC comes and they bail everyone out, right. They just did that. Right. right? Or sorry, the fed came in and they bailed everyone out. All the people, you know, I understand some of the logic. I mean, you know, your, your two arguments are 
well, we have to do this or there's a systemic risk of run on regional banks. And there's 2,000 regional banks. For sure. Totally understand that, right? Yeah. Um, the flip side of it is, is there's some moral hazard that gets created when, the, you know, when you're basically, your product as a bank is stability, right? And that's what you sell to your customers who are, who are depositors. And now you don't need to have a stable, uh, you know, you, now you don't have to be a stable provider of, of deposits uh, or, de- you know, de- deposit accepting facilities because it's all insured up to an infinite, an infinite amount of money. Um, and now there's no really, you know, a professional CFO, a, you know, a CFO of a company that has hundreds of millions of dollars of cash, tens of millions of dollars of cash or a VC funded company. I don't expect like guys with like a $10 million company and like a million dollars in cash to have this stuff, but companies with, you know, CFOs, treasury management is part of like what they're supposed to do. That's part of the job, right? So um, the fact that we're like, okay, it's kind of fine that you all failed and didn't do your job. I think there are some like accountability issues. And, you know, as a country, I guess I have, you know, some maybe and Rand, you know, uh, uh, qualms with, uh, with, with, the, with, with the fact that we just can't seem to accept accountability for any of our losses. But obviously, there's the, the other side of that, that. There was like some serious significant risk that depositors started losing a lot of money. And so, yeah, I, I don't really, you know, uh, um, I'm not sure which, you know, I kind of lost my train of thought, actually. So. <laughs> but, no, it's okay. Yeah. No, this is all really like great information. I mean, so, you know, we were just saying about like, do our other banks, you know, this um, regardless about their safety of their investing. But, you know, it's as you were talking, I kept thinking, man, like, you know, for some reason when these things happen, it doesn't surprise me, right? It, And I don't know why, but it's human nature. Like human nature is always, no matter what, even as big as the organization get, and you would hope in a big organization like SVB that the guardrails, the uh, CFO would understand what the guardrail should be but at the end of the day, I always know that humans are greedy when humans are in power and they they get really emotionally tied up. I've learned that in poker. The the more emotional you are about anything, you're just going to get razzled and you're going to think you're making a good decision when you're actually not because you have blinders on. So yeah. I'm not really surprised that mm-hmm. this is happening. What I am really curious about, I'd love to get your thoughts on, is are we turning into a, a like a state like Japan? where we can't raise interest rates because it does seem we raised interest rates and now banks are breaking and we have to uh, backstop that. Like, so what's going to happen? Man, that's a, that's a quadrillion dollar question. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, structurally, right, a company or a person or a country, as structurally, I mean, as you become a more indebted entity, and we have as a country, both our, yeah. our, our corporations, um, you know, our people and us as a country, as our public balance sheet, um, uh, you know, we have become much more indebted, right? Uh, although certain sectors like real estate is not nearly as bad as 2006, et cetera, or 2008, you know, et cetera. But, um, but you know, as a whole in general, especially as a country, we become more indebted. And anytime that more, you know, what are the first things that start to show, you know, signs of risk, usually, you know, usually it's junk bond spreads, right? Because highly indebted, poorly run companies that have a lot of debt, right? 
Well, the junk, you know, the, the spreads go up significantly as soon as rates start to rise because they are the first that won't be able to handle high rates, right? And so that is the tr- that is true of a country as well. It's true of a person, right? People that ha- have exposure to a lot of debt, um, you know, are the people that have the most, you know, have the most difficult time um, handling high, you know, handling interest rate rising. Um, you know, a real estate deal would be the same thing. You know, a deal that you bought at 80% LTV, um, you know, especially if you didn't add value, is going to have the hardest time to handle a refinance, right? Yep. Um, and so that is true of us right now. And, and, and Japan is obviously the, you know, the, is obviously the, the, the really probably the, the worst off in this situation. Um, but we are also very highly indebted. And so certainly, um, you know, I, I do want to caveat that this was an incredibly fast rise in rates and the rate of change, like the, the, it's possible that the terminal rates weren't such a big deal as as much as as much of, as the big deal was the quickness and the speed and velocity at which these rate hikes came. Um, you know, four hundred, five hundred basis points in a in twelve month period is is pretty out is is pretty outlandish. It's hard for the market to 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 calmly adjust to that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that absolutely. I think this is probably. I think it's hard to say that this is not indicative of a country that just cannot handle higher interest rates because of our debt load is so big. And, and, and as a society, um, you know, we've definitely, you know, we, we are structurally unable to handle certain higher rates. And I think that most economists, you know, would argue and certainly, you know, I think we've talked about it earlier on the show, right? If the U.S. endures high interest rates for too long, Right as our weighted average maturity of our bonds expire, and we have to pick up new bonds at the new rates, um, you know, sorry, as we have to issue new bonds at the new rates as a country, um, we would fall into a debt spiral if rates stayed where they, you know, four percent ten year and a you know five percent, you know, on the on the on the short term uh, on the shorter end of the curve, um, we would eventually fall into a debt spiral. Not very, it wouldn't take us very long because our debt, our, our debt expense would be so high that we'd have to issue more debt to pay for yeah. it. That debt. And, you know, that just, it becomes a cycle, right? And so certainly, certainly I think this is probably a factor of that. I also think that it's, you know, you get weird distortions when, when the rules of gravity are broken, right? So when the cost of money is free, right? And as in, in a ZERP environment, zero interest rate, you know, uh, environment, uh, during ZERP, like everything gets distorted. Um, you know, you saw, you know, you saw basically hopium type startups that had no product raising, you know, raising $50 million more, right? Ridiculous Um, amounts. Exactly. You saw, you know, all sorts of weird lending going on. You saw people that were desperate for yield getting into asset classes that they had no business getting into. Crypto, all these different, yeah. Yeah. In, in a in a world where where everyone's desperate for yield and also the cost of money is free, you get some weird distortions. Um, and the government's printing money. Oh man, you get some weird distortions. And so certainly, I think that um, I think those things are all interconnected. But yes, I think structurally we can't handle higher interest rates um, for that long, and certainly not at the speed that 
you know, they're moving at. I, I don't know that there's a better solution because inflation also has to stop, right? Like we have also have to get a control on that. So they're in a really hard spot. But, um, but the other part of it is like, we're also paying the piper for some really weird distortions in our markets for a significant amount of time. Yeah. You know, what makes me really nervous, Cody? And, uh, I, I want to ask you this on a personal level, cause you're, you're a father and, you know, obviously I'm trying to become a father here soon is that it feels like as though as a country, uh, after 2008, we, we printed, we, uh, did QE. And it feels like we just printed our way into this really like golden period of 10 years. And then now some banks are failing because, you know, inflation is happening. And then again, we're backstopping these banks and it feels like we're stepping in again. It just, it's kind of like letting, uh, not letting the market recover the way it needs to recover. Totally. Right. In 2008, it, there would have been a lot more pain and longer duration, but if we recover, it would have been really natural and organic. And I just, this is what's starting to scare me as a future father of if we keep kicking the can down the road when it does collapse, or if it does, it's just going to be way harder. It's going to hurt us way more. Yeah. I think that's a reasonable concern. Um, you know, the way they're stepping in right now, the BFTB or whatever the, whatever the lending facility was, the, 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 the Fed will actually loan on your par value of the bonds you have, um, which is crazy. So say your bonds have fallen 60% of value, they'll still give you 100% of the value in their loan to you. And they'll give it to you at like the cheapest possible cost. Like I think it's like 30 bips above the federal funds rate, which is mm -hmm. the cheapest debt you know that you could possibly get as far as short-term debt, um, cheapest cost of capital. So that's really weird to me. I, you know, like I said, I, I understand the reasons they're doing it, you know, over the short term. Right. Um, but it's also a distortion of the market. It's like me, it's like you bought, you bought a, uh, a an investment property for a million dollars and it fell in value to $600,000, but the bank's still willing to give you a loan for $1 million. Right. So they're Are giving they you a, yeah, a loan to value of not, 60 or 80 percent they're giving you a loan to value of 140 100 yeah 140 150 percent so how does that not distort the market yeah so so anyways I, th I think it's a totally valid concern and it's one i share as well i think that the longer we kick the can down the road i think the the more difficult a uh you know a recovery would be and you know i i don't have the answer i don't i don't know yeah. what the yeah yeah, I mean, you know, so this has been coming up in, in a lot of conversations and a lot of circles that I'm in about potentially uh, getting a passport to another country, right? Going investing somewhere like Portugal or just getting another passport. But again, you know, if if the U.S. banking system fails, well, I think the whole world's going to hurt as well, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, I would definitely <laughs> like we're, you know, I always like to say we're the tallest midget in the room, right? I mean... <laughs> Uh, money is lives in a world of alternatives and there's no other country that has our rule of law, uh, you know, and our, you know, I mean, we're, we're still the reserve currency and we're the reserve currency because there's, there's no other strong contender. There's just really, and we no have the biggest contender. army as well. To, and we have the biggest army. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't think that, you know, I think another passport is probably not going to help you in that type of scenario. 
Um, you know, the one thing that does give me solace is whether somebody's paying me in dollars or whether they're paying me in wampum beads or like whatever the, whatever the current currency is in that moment of time, right. They'll need to be paying me. Um, they'll need to be paying me for, uh, you know, they'll need to be paying me for shelter. And, you know, if the U S dollars that my loan is in, um, on the real estate go to zero, well, then I've just, you know, that then 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 I then then I can pay them in my four wampum beads that are now worth three million dollars or something like right. that. So I think I think during times like this, I really believe in owning hard assets. Yeah, same. Uh, let me ask you this question. Just and we don't have to get too deep into it. Are you personally doing anything like hedging, buying Bitcoin or gold? Um, because right now that's what everyone is screaming. Right. Like, look, we sure. told you, we told you yeah. this is what's happening. And uh, I'm personally not adding to my position in, in gold and Bitcoin right now, but I'm curious on what you're doing. I feel like I already have the position that I need in those things. Yeah, um, and so I guess, you know, maybe you would call me, maybe I'd be early. Uh, you know, I've owned Bitcoin since like 2013. Um, so my position is kind of already big enough that like, I'm like, okay, that's kind of my you know, I, I'm not buying more into it. I'm not selling right. it. I haven't sold it, but I'm not buying it either. Um, gold, I've had a significant position for a while. You know, well, I, I think you know about what you know about what they recommend. Um, I am, you know, I, I certainly am doing. I mean, my my position. You know, I always joke that like my 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 portfolio is ninety percent real estate and the other ten percent real estate. Um, but jokes aside, I mean, my you know, I do have some liquid and public market positions. I have super limited exposure to any public equities right now. Um, yeah. So yeah. all of my tied up cash is in uh, is in treasuries right now. Um, both because of the bank runs. Um, you know, so I moved some more into treasuries, and you saw that right, like as it's it's called the risk free you know it's called risk free for a reason right it is literally safer than banks um right. and so i moved any cash above my limits into treasuries um and i but i but, but all my public market like my etf portfolio is all in short dated treasuries right now as well um so that's what i've done i guess and especially with the bank run i put even more into short dated treasuries so not just like my public portfolio my etf kind of macro strategy uh, that I run on the side of my real estate investing um, as kind of like my diversifier, but also I just swept anything else that I had that was above the limits, um, even though it was in you know large, uh, it wasn't in any of the banks that are being affected right now. I still kind of got ahead of that, and I'm I'm putting it all into treasuries. Yeah, if you're sitting on a large sum of cash in your bank right now, uh, I would do two things: a, go vet your bank to see how they're positioned to make sure that they are liquid enough and they're conservative. And that's like, that's really important to make sure whoever you're dealing with in this sense, make sure it's conservative. And also if you're sitting on a bunch of cash to go and stick it into treasuries. I know we did that with, I know I did that personally with my money that I have. I know that the money that we raised up in in their fund with our CapEx schedule, we put some into uh, the treasuries. And so, um, you just got to position yourself and take advantage of what's happening right now as an investor. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, uh, uh, I, I think, uh, I think so, man. I think that you, you know, I, I think you, I, I'd be, I'm, everything's like feels a little nervous right now. Um, you know, and it's, uh, 
it's kind of a scary time. I'm, I, you know, I think that anytime things start to break in the market, you know, things that you think like a, uh, a cash, you know, like you think your money's safe in a bank. Right. Um, and so certainly if it's not safe in a bank, um, that's, you know, that starts to kind of eat at you. Right. Like, and like, I think that that eats into market psychology as well. Um, bank failures are not as, uh, you know, rare as you might think, but, you know, but it's been a while since, but it's been a while since we've experienced them, right? It's been, you know, in, in any sort of mass. And um, I think it's certainly got to be affecting a lot of people. I'm interested in what you're doing as far as like mindset um, in a really like rocky environment, um, in an environment where there's just like so many things going wrong, um, you know, and, and I think that, uh, I think that, you know, you in particular do a great job. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So, Okay, I think the the first thing you have to do, at least for let me just talk about what I do, is that I just you have to learn how to tune out the noise. Now, you have to really pay attention to it. You have to read about it. You have to understand what is happening because if you don't, that you're just being intellectually stupid. You have to understand what's happening in the market, but you can't. I think we spoke about this a tiny bit earlier. Is you can't get emotional, right? You cannot get emotional and make decisions based on everything because what's going to happen is you're going to read the media you're going to hear everybody talking about certain things and then you're going to start doing like we always talk about it mimetic theory right and so if everyone else is this way or feeling this way you're going to start being feeling inclined that i should start to feel this way but that is wrong like that is the worst thing to do and i learned this in poker you should never do Anything that other people are doing, do what's best for you. So just be completely uh, emotionally unattached to what's happening. And the way I look at it is uh, I like to dumb it down. I like to oversimplify everything because it just makes uh, investing in mindset a lot easier. For me, for example, I'm still going to come out of this period of time, let's call it a recession, um, ahead. Because what's going to happen is I think a lot of people get stuck on this that they're going to pass up on good deals right now because they're nervous of what's going to happen in the future. But there's there's ways to safeguard that. For example, if you get good long-term fixed debt and your deal still makes sense, why wouldn't you buy something now? And then if you're an entrepreneur in two years down the line and you need more cash, well, you can find ways to get that cash. That's what an entrepreneur is. We're solving problems. So the mindset is we have to understand what's happening but we have to be very mindful of our own emotions and not to get emotionally swayed one way or the other because it's very easy to start feeling negative about what's happening. And in times of a bull market, it's very easy to get trapped into that, oh my God, let's go do this and make a lot of money. Totally. Great point. Right? So you have to... And one thing that I do is I like to write my standards on a piece of paper. I know exactly what my margins are. I know exactly what ratios that I'm going to look for. And if I can find that in a market like this, I'm going to go and attack it. It comes back to the Warren Buffett. If everyone's running one way, you typically want to run the other way. So the practice of being unemotional, though, is really tough. Right. That's that's the tough part of saying, am I making an emotional decision? Am I making a logical decision? Do what you got to start asking yourself really powerful questions. Some of the things that I do is, am I going to love this property 10 years from now? Am I going to regret buying this property 10 years from now? Have I checked all my blind spots? So 
you really have to ask yourself powerful questions and be very honest with yourself and brutally honest with yourself. That's the mindset that I have going into a market like this. It doesn't affect me whatsoever. There's a lot of people that are getting really affected by it. And I know this from poker. When people are affected by something, I usually perk up and say, somebody's going to sell, somebody's going to make a bad decision. And that's when I make all of my money in poker and in real life. So I get grateful. Well, okay. I don't want to sound like a dick. I don't, I'm not grateful for times like this. I'm not grateful that banks are collapsing. I am grateful though that humans are prone to make bad decisions when there's turbulent times. And that's when people will capitalize on your mistakes. People will fire sell. People will make bad decisions. And in good times, kind of like the bank, in the good times, they just said, oh, this could always be this way. They didn't protect their downside. They didn't mitigate their risk. And this is what got them into trouble. So staying unemotional is my number one, number one key. And like, look, if you're in real estate or if you're in a business or anything, if a deal makes sense, a deal makes sense. It's, it's that simple. There's going to be deals that are going to go on. And I want to come out of this in the next two years really ahead Yeah, than where I was. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it's a really good point. I think that, you know, most people, most people say those things. Um, but then when, you know, they, most people say, oh, you know, like when, when everyone else is fearful, that's the time to get greedy. But actually when everyone else is fearful is when everyone just gets shit scared and freezes up, right? <laughs> that's <Like> correct. So, <laughs> so that's what correct. do you, um, uh, you know, what are some of the techniques that you use to kind of block out all the, um, you know, it's important. I mean, and I want to say this, you know, just blocking out the negativity. I don't mean like ignoring the reality of the boots on the ground, right. but I mean, staying level-headed, thinking clearly and rationally and not letting fear get the better of you. Um, because just like you can't let greed get the better of you during a bull market, during a, you know, during a down market, uh, the worst thing you can do is let fear get the better of you, right? Um, now's your time to execute. So what do you, are there any T tips or tricks that you specifically do? I know you do a lot of like, um, you know, work around your thoughts. Yeah. I, you know, so I, I definitely try to do, I try to be even killed in no matter everything that I do. I don't know if, I don't know if it's just a, a pattern now just from poker, but really the number one thing I think at a core level is to stay calm, right? If you read something and you feel yourself you, there's a strong pull. If you're reading a sizzle media clip and you're feeling a strong pull and you start to already kind of go down the spiral, that's how we're like what we do, right? We read something, we're like, oh shit, how does this apply to my life and what I'm doing? And then what's my things? And then you go and look for someone for confirmation bias and don't, you do not do that, right? Like read what you're reading, learn what you're learning and let it just sit and resonate with you. There's almost no decision that you have to make in the moment that's going to like impact you in the future. Like you have a few days, sleep on it, talk about it. So it's really just understanding your, your emotional cues. Um, and for me, that's a, really about my morning routine, my journal, my thinking time since we had to lore on here, I've been doing that. That's been really important. Um, but really staying even keeled and just understanding when you hear something, what is your natural inclinations on what to do? Secondly, I have forced myself and to train myself that nobody knows what the hell is going to happen in the future, 
right? Like Warren Buffett has the quote, um, forecasts may tell you a great deal about the forecaster. They tell you nothing about the future. That's so true. Everything that you read is just a prediction. And if you're just like having a magic ball, yes, there's um, a lot of data that we can do. And that's what we should understand what trends are, human nature, like tendencies, probabilities, right? You want to break down things into probabilities, but also understand that you have no idea what's going to happen in the future. We had no idea that COVID was going to come and make our interest rates nearly nothing and is going to appreciate everything. So you're going to have to make the best decision, even killed, non-emotional. But that's really, at the end of the day, Cody, there is no program. It's about you knowing you and to just stay calm and take a few deep breaths as soon as you find yourself, your heart beating and wanting to learn something and wanting to change everything that you're already doing. Um, yeah. No, I love that. I think that... Um you know, also I, I, you know, a trick I use too is I think it's so easy to just focus on all the craziness, right? And, um, you know, to your point, right, to like, uh, to, to be reading countless Wall Street Journal, you know, articles of what's going to happen or forecasts of what's going to happen. Um, but I always think about, uh, golf, right? Like, if you're trying to, if you're trying to clear a water hazard and, your thought is like, don't go in the water hazard. Don't go in the water hazard. Don't go in the water hazard. Like what's the first thing that you're going to do? You're going in the water hazard. Yeah, you're going to go in the For water sure. hazard, right? Yeah. So I think focusing on like what you do want to do, what you can execute on, what you can control, right? None of us can control what's going on in the market. We can't control debt markets. I can't control Credit Suisse going under or, you know, Signature Bank or anything else, right? All I can control is like focusing on like core operations of our business, Um being on the being on the being on the open, you know, being on the hunt for good opportunities, and I think that, um, you know, that's something I've had to like kind of change in my routine as well. Is like to not, I like you know, I like knowing what's going on, but um, but if you're focused too much on that and what's going on in the outside world, uh, you'll really miss all the things that you uh, that you can execute. Yeah, on, so. and and you know what? There's there's um. There's, there's a lot that I read about ADD. ADD, right? I'm going to relate this here soon, is that ADD, there's a lack of adrenaline going to your brain. And people who have ADD, like most of us, have some form of ADD. I think it's too misdiagnosed nowadays. But focusing on negative thoughts and things that can go wrong is actually more of an adrenaline boost to your brain. And so we're hmm. actually fixated to be able to think more negative thoughts because there's more adrenaline. So we're actually kind of inclined to no think way. negative. Yeah. I know that. So, yeah. so to understand that and then to be able to reverse it is a really powerful tool. Um, and then, you know, one thing, <laughs> this is very simple, but I think a lot of people will say this subconsciously. And I, I promise you a lot of us do this or, or, or used to do this. But if you ever say the words, I hope you're you're wrong. If you buy a property and you're like, and I'm hoping that the rents will continue to appreciate. I'm hoping that this area and the population will keep appreciating. You're already investing the wrong way. It's already, in my opinion, I don't ever speculate on the hope. So this is one thing why in, in times like this, I never get stressed out because every everything that I do is I, I essentially wipe out all and most hopes or... yeah any like, oh, I think it's going to do this and this. And if you're Hope counting, is not a strategy. 
Hope is not a strategy. And if you ever catch yourself saying that, that is the most ridiculous thing to do, especially when it comes to your money. We can't do that ever in, in, in the careers that we have. Just take away these grand optimistic assumptions and in your assumptions in everything, build so much space for the things that can go wrong and you're always going to surprise yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what I do as well. I, you know, I think this is going to be the worst recession. And then when it's not, it's going to be fine. When I think something's going to come in one week, I train myself to say it's going to come in three weeks. So I'm constantly surprised. And yeah, no, that's great, man. How, um, you know, how, I guess that you've kind of learned in poker, how have you kind of, have you implemented any specific tools for, uh, for being able to separate, um, for being able to separate, like maybe you're, maybe you're like, you're, you're just playing really terribly, right? Like you're having a, you're having a shit night. Everything's going wrong. Like, how do you come back from that? Uh, so it's called tilt. Like, let's yeah. say you're playing really horrible and you get a bad beat and you're playing really bad. You have to notice it really quickly. So that's in poker. You have to really understand it. So there's a few things. Go take a walk, 15 minutes. Or if you don't take a walk, because sometimes you're embarrassed to go take a walk, you need to really get in control of yourself. And really, it's what you put into your mind is what's going to happen. Just like the example you gave earlier. So like, oh man, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. I would flip it, take a lot of deep breaths, calm your heartbeat, and just say, I'm going to destroy these motherfuckers. Like, now I could use this as a super, like, now I can use this to my advantage. Yeah. You need to adapt really quickly. You need to calm yourself down. And this is emotional mastery. Emotional mastery in poker is are the people who are going to really get ahead. Um, I, I've been on a Warren Buffett kick lately, so I have another quote from him. And it's, the awesome. most important quality for an investor is temperament, not <laughs> intellect. I right. believe that. And, yeah. And it's so true in, in moments like this. Um, you just know that even if you, you're not going to make the wrong decision, as long as you think it through and you are not emotional about anything that you're doing. Same with poker. Things are going to happen right. Some, some things are going to happen wrong. But you need to really catch yourself to make sure that your guardrails are up and then that you can readjust your um, attacking pattern to others. So yeah. if I'm losing and I'm playing badly, I now know everybody else knows that I'm playing badly. And it's the faster I can catch that, I can play into that. So that way I can like essentially fake playing badly to win yeah. uh, some bigger pots. Totally. I, I love one of the things you said about your thoughts. Um, it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of um, uh, coach T and he talks about, you know, how everything, how everything comes from your thoughts, right? Thoughts lead to, yep. I can't remember exactly what it is, but I think thoughts lead to emotions, emotions lead to, lead to reactions, reactions lead to, you know, you taking action, action leads to results, right? And so it all kind of like, it all kind of stems from from your thoughts. And I, and, and I think the Warren Buffett quote is totally true. Somebody else said that one time, and I can't remember if it was him or somebody, or somebody else, but they said it in like a, a more, uh, you know, a more verbose way that, you know, if you took, if you took the best investors in the world, they'd all have, the one thing they'd all have in, in common is the ability to, is the ability to, to have great temperament when things are going terribly and good temperament, 
temperament when when things are going great, right? Um, not being caught up in a greed cycle, not getting caught up in a fear cycle. So yeah, yeah. I mean that's and that's really it. So that this is why I always know back to our one of our first points that in no matter what market we're in, people are going to make mistakes. And this is why there's so much opportunity in this country and it really in the world is because humans will always make mistakes. And then if you have the education and you know what you're doing, you can capitalize on other people's mistakes. Yeah. Like the, the properties we buy. To us, it's a mistake. Maybe to them, it's not a mistake, but we understand the game on a higher level than the sellers. And so we're able to find these opportunities that others really don't um, capitalize on. Yeah. Same with life. Totally. Same with this kind of moment. Yeah. No, it's really good. It's really yeah. good, man. I'm definitely going to take some of that. You, you uh, by far, kind of the uh, are the mindset king. Um, <laughs> I need to. Uh, I, I, uh, I really, uh, really appreciate your insights there, and especially like all that you've learned through your years of, uh, of, of different experiences that I have not gone through. I think that um, being able to kind of being able to set the right mindset and um, and come at it with a clear mind is is really helpful, especially like when we're just being bombarded by uh, by really bad news. Yeah, I think I think you and I have a really good um, mix. Right. I, by the way, I think you have a great mindset. You're one of the most badass people I know, and you're incredibly intellectual. And I, you know, but it's a really good mix that you have. You have an incredibly high IQ. I have a, a decently high EQ, and I think I, <laughs> you I think have a very it, it high works, EQ. Yeah, I think it works pretty damn well. So, uh, but I appreciate all your insights on this, and this is what I love. I love surrounding myself with people like you and. And everybody else in our masterminds and just to learn from everybody and absorb the information and then understand what works best for you and not best for you. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I think, um, you know, given that there is so much fear in the marketplace, we are starting to see some opportunities. Um, bid ask yeah, reds starting to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we, we recently uh, are, we, we were seeing a debt deal, uh, a uncapped sponsor took a bath and the lender took it back. And, wow. um, and so, uh, we have, a, we have a possible in there. Um, so nothing that is coming to fruition yet or that is under contract yet, but we are starting to see the market move a little bit. Um, and people start to accept the new reality of the world and some really, really interesting opportunities. Um, I mean, there's definitely a bar that no matter how scary it is in the world, um, you know, if we can, if we can buy at a specific basis and hold for, you know, hold for, for, for 10 years and cash flow that entire time really well. I mean, those are deals that we'll do all day. So, um, so we are starting to see some opportunities and I think that having our team, we actually came into this year hiring people, um, for these opportunities. And we also picked up some great talent. Um, so like our, our, our new VP of, uh, of acquisitions, for example, got laid off because somebody's terrified of the current market thought, you know, there's going to be no opportunities to acquire real estate, and 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 we, you know, we aren't going to be able to look at any new deals for a really long time. Um, whereas we're leaning into that, and we're, you know, me and my partner are spending our own money to do so. And I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities. So, um, I think uh, I think now is the time. Now is the time to really be out in the market and looking, and um, and pressing that advantage um, because there yeah. is a there's a solid advantage for buyers that are willing to. Um, you know, that have, uh, that have guts of steel and, uh, you know, are not scared. Yeah. I, I love what you just said there. And, um, you just, 
you want to be conservatively aggressive. Sure. Right. And that's yeah. what I tell my team all the time. We want to be conservatively aggressive. We want to come out of this period ahead because we're going to turn every rock over and we're going to be aggressive with hiring. I, I too just hired a head of acquisitions and there's a lot of talent right now too. So again, these are some of the things of you have to understand the market. People are getting laid off. People are looking for good jobs. This is a good time to find good talent. You and I are fortunate enough that we have a lot of resources in sense of the real estate that's putting off cash flow flow that doesn't get affected in times like this, that we can use that money to rehire yeah. right, and to reinvest into our infrastructure and, and to grow out our systems. And that's what we're doing as well. So be conservative, but be aggressive. Yep. Absolutely. We're doing, uh, um, you know, I think uh, uh, we're doing one of the most maybe more more interesting or more scary things. We're we're, we're starting a new fund right now. Yeah, I so, know you want to talk about it. Uh, maybe another episode, but maybe we, another, uh, all right. uh, we're uh, <laughs> we're excited about the opportunities. I think it's going to be one of the harder points in time to, uh, um, you know, maybe not. I, I don't want to say. It's I don't different. think so. I, yeah, I don't think to, so either. To raise money right now? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I wouldn't say that it, uh, harder points in time, but I think that there will be. You know, there's a lot of fear out there. But um, but we're looking to capitalize on it, and I think well, there's going to be some good ones. What I would say to that is, if you're comparing it to the last four or five years, then yeah, it's absolutely going to be harder, right? But there's also so much money on the sitting on the sidelines, and people are still doing really well in their businesses. Tons. Yeah. Um, and so I've been quite surprised about the amount of people who want to, you know, when we open up our next uh, tranche in our fund, how many people are on the wait list and keep want to get referring others who want to be in. I don't think it's going to be that hard uh, in terms of that. But yes, if you compare it to three years ago or two years ago, even one year ago, sure, where people could just throw up something and everyone's like, all right, I'll book it all out. Yeah. <laughs> I. I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to be bad. I, I think that, you know, there's definitely going to be some people that are nervous, but um, you know, I really truly believe, I think the vintage of deals that we do from now through 2024 is going to be probably our best vintage over the next decade um, because it. there's opportunity, right? Because there's going to be spot distress. I don't think there's going to be widespread distress. Like you said, there's so much hundreds of billions of dollars sitting on the sidelines in equity funds that has to be deployed this year. There's not going to be, you know, there's too much opportunity. As soon as I see a great deal, um, it gets scooped up like that, right? Um, there's multiple bids on it, right? So fairly priced deals are popping, like, you know, you know, are, are, are not staying online, right? So that's what you, we've talked about it before. That's what you need to find distress, right? You need four sellers and no buyers. Um, and there's still, there's still plenty of buyers, but I do think that we've started to find that spot level distress and, uh, you know, can capitalize it on, on it. So yeah. I'm really excited for this vintage from like now till, till the end of 2024. I, love it. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity. Yeah. So. We have, we have two deals in escrow right now that I, this is not the multifamily space, but you're sure. going to be a little jealous. One's at a 7.5 cap and the other one's at 9.3 cap that we're buying it at. That's crazy. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah, mobile home parks, man. It's a it's a different uh, different valuation entirely. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah it great. really is. Good for you, yeah, man. man. Um, what uh, what size? Uh, their one is sixty, and one I believe is like seventy two. They're cool. not huge, but they're they're great. Where they're at? Great deals. One's in Texarkana, okay. and we already have a deal in Texarkana, so it's like a mile away. Oh, nice. Um. And then the other one's in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which we love that market as yeah, well. Yeah, North Fayetteville's yeah. great. Awesome, yep. man. I'm excited for you. Um, well, it has to pass due diligence. We're, cool. we're pretty stringent, but yeah, let's see. 
Um, but we like like you, we are starting to see sellers uh, price accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's awesome, man. Nothing screaming because we are still getting a lot of bids on it, but they're yeah, priced yeah, accordingly. I, I, I yeah. I mean, this is not. It's not 2006, 2007, 2008. You know, we're not going to see. Um, you know, I, I I really don't think we're going to see stuff pricing at ten caps. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> our equivalent of ten caps in, right, uh, in no, multifamily. But um, but but certainly there's going to be some good opportunities out there, and they're starting to show up now. Yep. So, cool, man. All right, man. Well, I think this was a great episode, Cody. Thank you for your you know how much you read up on this and your intellect and breaking it down. Um, always no, appreciate absolutely. the hell out of you, man. I appreciate all your uh, mindset trips. I think uh, tips. I think that uh, those are far more useful and far more applicable because that's the stuff that really matters at the end of the day, right? Is is uh, keeping uh, you know keeping keeping a good temperament and uh, focus on executing in your business and uh, letting all the noise that I was talking about kind of fade away. Yeah. Keep your head down. Keep grinding. That's it. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Pasha. I'll talk right. to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Cody. That's the pod. Thank you for joining us today. We think it's an absolute no-brainer that hitting subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app will help you on your journey to your next 10 million.